Well, hello and welcome back to the Will and Rob Show. It is great to be with you again this week. Um, this week, it is just me. Uh, Robert has the week off, and so he is with uh, his family and studying away. Um, and as always, my name is Will Stockdale. I'm a ministry associate with Ministry to State. That's a ministry of the PCA here in Washington, D.C. that uh, is ministering to those serving in government. And so um, supporting them with a, with a biblical world and life view and their work and calling. Uh, I am very excited this week to be with uh, a special guest that we have, who is uh, Dr. Brent Nelson, who I've been told to call Brent. And so, um, but uh, Dr. Brent Nelson is a professor of politics and international affairs at Furman University, where he has taught since 1990. Uh, he received his Bachelor of Arts from Wheaton College and his MA and PhD from the University of Madison, uh, Wisconsin, Madison. His teaching and scholarship focuses on Europe and the European Union with an emphasis on religion and politics. And his most recent book is co-authored with James L. Guth is entitled Religion and the Struggle for European Union, Confessional Culture and the Limits of Integration from Georgetown University Press right here in Washington, D.C. And so uh, thank you so much for being on the show. And one of the reasons that we wanted to have you on was to uh, help us as Christians living in this late modern West get a handle on um how we are, where we are in terms of the, the political culture that we're in, uh, the church where she is, how they've interacted. And so uh, as this is an area of, of great expertise for you, um, getting a, an understanding of um, the, the history that brought us to this place and what is the current landscape and how we can best navigate this, this world that we're living in, where God has called us for such a time as this. And so just first of all, thank you again for being on the show. Oh, Will, thanks so much for inviting me. This is a real privilege, and I look forward to our conversation. Okay. Well, so do I. So do I. So my first question uh, as we dive in is, why did you have to get rid of the mustache? I have grown a mustache. Uh, I have this, was hoping to have some solidarity. Your, your, uh, your online, one of your photos has you with a mustache. And so I just got to know what, what happened. Yeah, well, honestly, my mustache does not look good, as good as yours. I, you, you've got the Tom Selleck. You've got the real Tom Selleck. Look. Oh, that is um, the highest praise you could give. But I, <laughs> I disagree with the comments of your mustache. I, I think it was a solid look. I, I, I was going, uh, I guess, for the more Sam Elliott look, uh, being as gray haired as I am. Uh, but I couldn't quite get there either. But yeah, wives have something to do with men's facial hair. And uh, so my wife kept saying, Brent, you look old. <laughs> oh, so, you know, that's that's about the worst cut you can get. So, um, yeah, there are a bunch of students. My students seem to be pretty attached to my mustache, too. So I, uh, I I'm spending next fall in Brussels, Belgium, with our internship program there. I might come back with uh, uh, an addition. Yeah. So we'll see how that goes. Check it at customs, but I'm sure they're going to let you back in. I mean, that's something worth returning. <laughs> and you were yeah, just they, in. I was, I was just in Brussels. I know that's what you were going to say. Yes. But, so um, you were at a conference there. Yeah, we were doing, uh, I, I wrote a paper with Jim. Uh, we do a lot of things together and uh, we're working with a group of, of scholars on a book on religion and politics in Europe, uh, looking particularly 
uh, well, most of the, the contributors are looking at uh, religion in their domestic po- uh, parliaments, and then how, if there's any connection between religion in their domestic parliament and religion at the European parliamentary level. So two levels of analysis kind of looking at, at that. But Jim and I did not really focus on the European parliament. We we usually focus on public opinion. And so we sort of did a more broad uh, view of the European Union as a whole, but it was really, really uh, encouraging to go there, meet with people who are working on church-state issues in places like Poland and Romania and Estonia, and those are frontline states. And so we had a lot of talk about war and culture and um, religious geography and those kinds of things. So, yeah, for a guy who's you know a nerd about those things, I had a great time. What a time to be over there needing um, strong faithfulness. I know that it's on all of our hearts and minds as well to be praying for what's happening and um, the mm-hmm. displacement and just the travesty that that is. And so um, I'm glad to hear that. Uh, so with that in mind, talking about the European Union, what would be the best place for us to start in terms of getting a handle on the beginning of a historical understanding of the way that church-state relations changed and morphed and became what they did in in the modern world and beyond. Um, you know, I think for someone who hasn't studied history extensively, but thinks about some church history, I think about how different things were under Domitian or uh, Nero, for example, versus mm-hmm. how things happened under Constantine. So how do we get from that to where we are now? I think that's a great place to start, Will. Uh, and I don't want to make this, uh, you know, a discussion of ancient history, But I think we do start with the early church, and we have to understand that the early church was um, uh, a cultural outlier, uh, really a a cultural rebel group, because uh, the church stood against uh, what all empires have to have, which is not only a common political system, but some sort of common cultural glue that holds the empire together. Um, And this can come in different ways. Uh, Different empires from China to the Incas have done it slightly differently, but it usually has a religious element and it it tends to focus on the emperor as some kind of semi-deity or an actual deity. It depends on where you're looking. And you can tolerate lots of different religions in an empire as long as there's some sort of even thin layer of tribute paid to um, the imperial power as something special. And in the Roman Empire, when they moved from the Republic to uh, the imperial structure, um, Augustus, Caesar Augustus, who... um, won the civil wars against Pompey and um, against Mark Antony and Cleopatra, uh, and he came out victorious. Um, he was he was very unclear about the way he saw himself in this imperial system, uh, but it was pretty clear to a lot of people around the empire that they were willing to worship at least what they called his genius or his spirit. And... Um, the way they, you know, you can't really talk about Roman theologians, but those who thought about God, the gods uh, thought that after an, uh, uh, an emperor died, he, his genius would ascend to the assembly of the gods. 
Um, but before his genius uh, ascended, you could pay homage to him. And so that's kind of how the imperial structure um, managed that cultural glue. You could believe whatever you wanted about your own local gods, as long as you paid tribute to um, the, the Roman genius of the, the emperor. Uh, so Christians didn't really fit well in that structure because they refused to say that Jesus fit underneath the imperial power. Um, Jesus, when they proclaimed that Jesus was Lord, they were proclaiming that Caesar was not. Um, it, and and every, everybody who understood anything about Christianity understood that that was the case, that Jesus was Lord, Caesar was not. Um, for much of the early Roman period, uh, Christians were just not important enough to pay any attention to. Uh, Nero did. Um, apparently scapegoated them for the destruction of Rome, which he may or may not have actually committed himself. But um, most of the time, a lot of Christians were just kind of ignored for a long period of time. Um, Diocletian, however, went in, this, in the third century, when he tried to reestablish a cultural glue in the empire, which had begun to fray uh, through some very bad decades, um, he, he set up a, a four emperor system and uh, with two emperors kind of more important than the other two emperors. And anyway, in the end, you know, he launched a, really a pogrom against Christians and um, tried to eradicate them from the Roman Empire because they were undermining the imperial ideology that was to hold the emperor, empire together. Um, it didn't work. The, the Christians just wouldn't go away. Um, there was great suffering. And, you know, we had a Donatists a uh, uh, um, conflict that came out of all of that. Some, some priests and people went along with the, the terror and, and, and joined the Roman forces and others stood against them. And we had church splits after all of that. But um, at the highest uh, political level, um, Constantine, who came after Diocletian, um, he established, he, he allowed Christians um, freedom in the early fourth century. He didn't make Christianity the official religion that came later, but Christians were allowed um, to worship freely and Constantine began to apply state resources to um, build churches and establish churches as part of the Roman society. So uh, very quickly, really, um, within, within a century, uh, the Roman religion died out and Christianity became the official religion. So why is all that important? That's important because from that point on, you had this marriage of the imperial throne with the state church or throne and altar were combined as the cultural glue that held the late Roman Empire together. And um, that was an ideal that 
literally remained through the medieval period. So as the Roman Empire dissolved, go ahead. Yeah. When you say medieval period, can you just give us dates on what you're conceiving? Like, how, where do you delimit the, the timeline for the medieval period? As you um, personally. <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll get in trouble with every medieval historian uh, because they all have different dates. But let's just right. say 1400. 1415 i actually let's Starting go at 400 let's let's go all the way up to luther 15, okay 1517 let okay. let's just say that um that's a good uh handy point to to end the medieval period uh especially for the kinds of things we're talking about so this was the roman ideal and it became deeply embedded in both the political imaginations of europeans and the religious imaginations of Europeans as the empire, as the late empire dissolved, and it didn't fall, it dissolved. It took a long period of time. Um, and as it, the political empire dissolved, the religious empire sort of remained, um, it, it, it remained in place. I mean, a lot of the, uh, a lot of the Catholic church's structure comes from the political administration of the Roman Empire. So diocese, for instance. So the, um, the popes began to organize the West, not so much the East. They had a different structure. Well, one thing I wanted to ask with this, as we think about the, the way that the, you mentioned cultural glue. And so I'm thinking about that metaphor here for mm -hmm. um, as Europe becomes united in a way and um, not homogenous, but more similar than it was prior to Christianity moving into this part, these parts of this part of the world. And so one thing I was going to ask you is what, what did Europe look like before Christianity came in? Um, like Germanic tribes, for example, I think of, or, or Northern Europe, and then did Christian, that cultural glue, did that, was that applied to those tribes and little states that existed? Um, with the church and state working together? Uh, by the time of the barbarian invasions, um, Rome was weakening as, a, as an administrative power. So um, now lots of those Germanic tribes, which were kind of being pushed out of the steppe area, and so they had to move to the west, um, they were pretty enamored with the Roman Empire. And so many of the leaders, you know, wanted to become senators. They didn't really want to conquer Rome. They wanted to become part of Rome. And so they, they uh, adopted Christianity, sometimes a version of Christianity like Arianism rather than um, Orthodox Catholic Christianity. Uh, but they, uh, um, they slowly Christianized. Now I, I think this is probably the time to bring Charlemagne in uh, because we're skipping over a number of centuries. But, you know, as, as, the, as I said, within the European imagination, and this includes the barbaric tribes that moved into the Roman Empire, which, you know, extended all the way into Britain. So, you know, this is a big, big chunk of Western Europe was under Latin control. Let's just call it Latin control. But um, the, the, the Germanic tribes were gaining great strength uh, in that period, uh, say 500 up to 800. So over a period of time, the Frankish 
tribes that were centered in what we call France and Germany now um, became the great power of the West. And um, Charlemagne's ancestors were really the ones that solidified the, the empire. But Charlemagne himself, um, he took, he became king of the Franks in the late, um, in the late eighth uh, century. And he defeated the Saxons, forcibly baptized them. So you can see here that this political power also had a religious element to it. They could not, they could not conceive of governance that didn't include a religious element, a uniform, homogenous religious element. So when you conquered a people, you changed their religion. Your political power brings with it religious power. So, you know, you can go back and, I mean, it was brutal. It was a brutal time. You know, people died. Uh, people were forcibly baptized. Uh, Christianity was forced upon the Saxon people who eventually willingly embraced it, but it took a while. Uh, but Charlemagne still had this Roman mentality where the political structure of the West should be centered on Rome, uh, should carry with it a kind of sacred quality, and the, the West should be tied together with a common religion, now under the Roman bishop or the pope. So in 800, um, the Pope, uh, Charlemagne goes down to Rome, saves the Pope, defeats the Lombards, you know, so he's kind of there in the center where all of it's supposed to happen. We don't know whether Charlemagne arranged this or what, but however it happened on Christmas, on Christmas Day, the Pope crowns Charlemagne Emperor of the Romans. It's one of my favorite stories of church history because Charlemagne loves to make it sound like he just stumbled in. I had no idea the Pope would <laughs> want yeah. to crown me on. I just happened to be at the right place at the right time. And, uh, and it's, honestly, it's... you know, we just don't know. <laughs> we okay. don't know enough. We, we, there's so little actual evidence of Charlemagne himself. You know, everything is written, uh, you know, laudatory, uh, histories of Charlemagne and, and, and there's very little eyewitness diaries or things like that. So we just don't know. So much of it was rewritten for political purposes later on, either from the Pope side, obviously, you know, the Pope wants to say, I chose the emperor mm -hmm. and the emperor wants to say, I arranged my crowning because it matters. Um, does the does the political power guide the church or does the church guide the political power in the west that was always the conflict the east never had that conflict because what happened in constantinople and byzantium was that they simply adopted the constantinian model what we call caesaropapism where the where the emperor is the sacred representative of Christ on earth. And the church is subordinate to the leadership of the emperor. In the West, it, it didn't work out historically that way. And the fact that popes who claimed to be the successors of the emperors, they had the, they carried the imperial signia, 
insignia. Um, they even created, you know, fake documents that said that Constantine had had right. uh, given the whole of the West over to the popes for the them, donation uh, of Constantine, correct? The donation of Constantine, and we know it to be a forgery, but that that was the ideology. So popes were claiming superiority, emperors were claiming superiority based on the Eastern model, and so you always had this tension between church and state. There's no other culture on the planet where there is a tension between church and state. That developed in the West. Um, why much, is that? Why why is there not a tension, basically? In 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 the other, like in the Muslim tradition, um, you know, even if you look back to ancient Israel, um, but uh, then in the Eastern Roman tradition, it, the political and religious power centers on the religious uh, on the political leader. There's no, there's no sense of separation between religious and political power. It is one and the same. Um, now, we in the West have made a great deal of Jesus's words, render under Caesar what is Caesar's, unto God what is God's. But in the East, they didn't consider those words to be like um, representative of two different powers. Um, they just didn't dwell on that. Yeah, I think one thing, I think in our late modern years, when we hear about this relationship between church and state so closely, Charlemagne and Alcuin, or the Pope and crowning Charlemagne on Christmas Day, um, we can we can really shudder away and be like, oh, that's terrible, that's no good. But in a sense, I, I do want to be sympathetic to the realities of the time and that that mm -hmm. was the world that they were working in. And um, from it seems like the, the alternative would have been much worse and that leaving Europe as it was without this kind of um, movement of, of civilizing Europe really in a lot of ways, because it was so barbaric. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I want to see, how do we get from that point mm -hmm. uh, where with Charlemagne to the end of that point, which is Martin mm -hmm. Luther and the yeah. world that was created that, that made right for a reformation. Yeah. Um, I, that, that's a good point. And I guess what I'm trying to underline is how unusual the West is mm -hmm. in human experience with this tension between religious and political leadership. Um, but you're exactly right. What Charlemagne did once he had solidified his position as both political and religious leader, because um, he called councils and he presided over the Council of Frankfurt. So he saw himself as a Eastern style emperor. Now, later on, that began to change as the popes became more powerful. But hmm. what Charlemagne did was he created a common culture in the West by regularizing the liturgy, by regularizing the Latin script, by, um, by bringing together canon law in one place so that the West could apply the same cultural for forms and symbols from you know Stockholm to Lisbon, uh, it was a huge chunk that was really under Roman Catholic uh, culture and homogeneity. Now there are you know, architectural some architectural differences and things like that, but you know fasts and feasts and saints and you know th there was a, a real uniformity pilgrimages a real uni uniformity across the west so 
when Martin Luther comes in 1517 and says, I've got a different way of conceiving of the religious part of uh, our, our cultural heritage, it had an earthquake effect and it just shattered what had seemed to be a uniform religious culture. Um, so that's why Emperor Charles V spent a lot of time trying to eliminate Protestants on the European continent because it, you know, I don't know that we can feel the emotion that Catholics felt when the Lutherans and the Reformed began to actually split off from the church. Yeah, would you go into that a little bit of what that splintering, fracturing, earthquake, um, cat I mean, there, it seems like there are so many descriptive words that could be used that are appropriate for what set off around Europe. Um, you mentioned Charles V, and so like neighboring kingdoms that were divided, uh, what did that look like in a geographical, geopolitical um, mm -hmm. uh, setting? And then like who was allied where? Yeah, well, you know, Protestants popped up in a lot of odd places, even in places like, you know, France and Italy. Uh, in Italy, they were squashed very quickly. Um, Germany, it took root. The Netherlands, it took root. Of course, Britain, it took root. Scandinavia, it took root. Now, as a social scientist slash historian, I ask questions about, well, why did it take root in certain places and not others? Uh, why, for instance, in France, did you have a big Reformation movement that was eventually um, squashed by Louis XIV? I mean, literally, I guess, I don't know how you define genocide, but um, it was a kind of genocide or at least um, a religious wow. cleansing. Wow. So, uh, you know, I'm here in South Carolina. We got a lot of Huguenots that moved to South Carolina because <laughs> they got pushed out by, by Louis XIV. And um, wow. So um, what an incredible way, like the way history works, like just this is an aside, yeah, but just yeah. to think about where you are even teaching that the implications of, yeah. of church persecution has immediate across an ocean yes, um, in South Carolina. Yes. Yeah, we have uh, town names like Beaufort that are French names. And people go like, I thought we were an English colony. Yes, we were an English colony, but we were populated by a lot of Huguenots who were looking for religious freedom. Wow. So, um, you know, Britain, the Netherlands, even Germany, there's still a Huguenot church in Berlin. Um, and so, so, uh, so some countries were able to squash the Protestants and push them out, but Germany, because it was divided in principalities anyway, found political powers that were willing to defend the Protestant church. Now, let me just say that the magisterial Protestants like Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, uh, Busser, they did not believe in, a, uh, in ending Christendom, this marriage of throne and altar. They just wanted to reform the church part of, the, of that marriage. Uh, and they found allies in political powers who were beginning to feel more nationalistic. Uh, so nationalism and the nation state is e emerging at, at this time. And the religious wars actually pushed the international system into a nation state system. 
But before you can understand that, you have to understand that people like um, Gustav Vasa in Sweden, in a, in, a, in a fight against the Danes, wanted to establish his own Sweden, his own land. And he saw that by adopting Lutheranism, and we don't really know that he was all that interested religiously, but he could see that if I adopt Lutheranism that, and I can somehow establish Sweden as my own kingdom, I can be the king and the church leader. If I'm just the king, then I have to be beholden to the Pope and the Pope could give Sweden back to Denmark or whatever. So I want my own religious tradition. Now, this doesn't fit well with the notion of a common Christendom, one politics, one religion. But if you kind of take Christendom and shrink it down to one country, then it might work. So what you saw in the 16th and early 17th century is what, what I call Christendom in one country. But there were a lot of Christendoms. So Sweden established a Christendom. Henry VIII in England, in Britain, uh, established Christendom in one country. Um, William of Orange in, in Britain, they never quite got to the one country, one, one religion thing in, in the Netherlands, but they had that as an image. Various electors in uh, Germany did the same thing. So eventually you had, and, and the Danes did it. So eventually you had the Nordic region, you had parts of Germany, um, the Netherlands and Great Britain as um, establishing their own Christendoms in one country. This solidified nationalism, it also resulted in a reaction in Rome, certainly a theological reaction, but also a political reaction. The desire to get these Protestant parts of Europe back into the fold launched the religious wars of the 16th and 17th centuries that resulted, and we talk about the long 16th century that goes kind of into the middle of the 1600s, um, but the, you know, the, the religious wars exhausted Europe. It was really the First World War, um, and the result was the settlement of Westphalia in 1648, when the exhausted powers decided, okay, Every prince gets to decide the religion of his country, and no one else can interfere. So if you want to be Protestant, fine. Of course, everybody in your country then has to be Protestant. Uh, you get to choose the religion of the people in your, your country because they still believed in Christendom. They still believed in the unity of throne and altar, but they're going to now geographically divide Europe and these boundaries are going to mean something. You can be on one side of the boundary and be a legitimate legal Catholic and step over the boundary and be an illegal um, persecuted Catholic and vice versa with the Protestants. So the boundaries matter. Well, for Protestants, those boundaries became their guarantee of religious liberty. Those boundaries became the guarantee of national liberty. And so they really fixated on the boundaries of their country. The Catholics never really felt the same way about boundaries. In fact, as late as the mid 20th century, there were many Catholics who would say that national boundaries are heresies because God desires the church to be one. 
And those boundaries represent the fragmentation of the church. The Protestants have separated. And those boundaries demonstrate that difference, that fragmentation. So really to establish boundaries is to honor a heresy. And the popes felt that way. I mean, the pope, uh, I can't remember the name of the pope at the time of 1648, but he absolutely, completely rejected the international system established in 1648 based on the nation state. He just saw nation states as horribly destructive of the unity of Christendom. Well, you mentioned 1648 Treaty of Westphalia. However, an even more important event happened in 1648 in England at the Long Parliament with the Westminster Assembly and the Westminster Divines. Can they get there? I got to make the Presbyterian plug here. Yeah, yeah. I got to. I got to make the as a PCA fellow yourself. Um, So we we have this. um, You mentioned Henry VIII and England and these Christendoms that are being formed. And I really think it's so helpful that we started with Constantine and the cultural glue because it makes so much sense why. The religious, because it's very hard for us, I think, in our modern ears to understand why would that happen. Like, well, if you understand, and we forget this probably wrongly, it seems that that there is a religion that is a cultural glue that binds people together, mm-hmm. uh, informally or formally, um, practices that that pull people together. So, um, when when we go to England and we consider the Westminster Assembly um, and the finishing of the Westminster Confession of Faith and larger and shorter catechisms. Um, how then did that set up a movement from England to the United States to colonize and then begin this American experiment um, that sounds like an outgrowth of these other um, uh, historical events that you had been describing? Yes, yeah, so very important moments. Um, even the Westminster divines were still thinking in terms of Christendom. They just wanted to reform, again, reform the church. Um, and they, they didn't succeed in, in, in England. Um, the, the Anglican church remained the one official church of, of England. They succeeded in Scotland. Which was more important, arguably. We'll leave out whether or not it was actually a total success. Uh, yeah, for right. Okay. <laughs> uh, right. Um, yeah, but the... The idea was that England was still trying to establish a single church, and that's why the Puritans were persecuted, because the Puritans were trying to reform the church and uh, were not comfortable in England, left for the Netherlands, and eventually left for the American North American continent. Remember, that was 1620. This is 28 years before the Treaty of Westphalia. And so... Um, you're you're still you're still in a mindset where each religion wants to establish itself as the one religion, the pure religion of your people. And I would argue that the Puritans had the same notion. They were just a very small group of people. Um, I've been to the church uh, in Amsterdam where they where it's the from what they told me, I don't haven't fact checked this, but they say it is the oldest English speaking, continuously English speaking church outside of England in the world. 
So it's been 400 and some years as a English speaking church in Amsterdam. And the people that started that church were the people that went to Plymouth rock and their names, they were elders, right. And their names are still on the wall and the, the original documents are there. So I encourage anybody who, who happens to hang in Amsterdam for a bit to go to the English speaking church in Amsterdam. Do you remember the name of this church? Could it be Googled? I think it can be. I mean, just Google uh, English speaking churches in Amsterdam and it, it will pop up. It, it doesn't have a special name. I think it's just the English church or something like that. Um, I did worship there once and wow. it was a long time ago. So I don't remember everything. I remember, I can remember the church. I can't, and I can remember the inside. I don't remember even what part of Amsterdam it's in, but just Google it. You'll find it. Um, but but the, but the the notion is that you know they were going to North America to establish their version of Christendom. Now, the Netherlands, England to some extent, and certainly the colonies in on the North American continent, um, you know, realized that they were gathering a lot of different people that had a lot of different notions of what Christendom should look like, and they the 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 facts of pluralism began to seep into the popular consciousness and the idea of tolerating other people who didn't believe what you believed and yet were willing to let you worship the way you want to if you let them worship the way they want to that that kind of tolerance began to grow it was a very slow process i mean most mm -hmm. people for until very recently, you know, really thought that the people that don't worship like me, even of a different de Christian denomination, are really heretical. And we certainly don't want to give them all the political power. Um, but it was, you know, it's in the, it was in the United States, which was from the beginning, pretty pluralistic, where we decided that the government should not be married to a one religion, because we just can't decide on what that one religion is. Um, and basically to protect the churches, we established this different, this, this division between church and state. Now, I think we have to talk about one more revolution before we can really understand that. And it was not our revolution, our revolution of 1776 to say 1789, um, was, uh, for all intents and purposes, still thinking in terms of religion and state being consistent in some way, if not established. But it was the French Revolution hmm. that broke decisive, made a decisive break between politics and religion. You could suddenly and I mean really suddenly, conceive of politics without religion. Although I, I have to say that even the revolutionaries in France found it difficult to think in those terms, and they decided to create their own religion of reason, which was an utter failure. Um, but they couldn't even think of a, a government without a cultural glue that was centered on religion. Well, they had to call it a cult, correct? The cult of reason, yeah, even. Right, uh, the cult and... of reason. But cult is at the, that's the root of culture. Mm. 
And so they were th still thinking about a cultural glue that would hold the nation together. Um, so they still couldn't imagine, um, you know, a nation without a common cultural glue. And they, that's why they were anti-clerical. They were anti-church. They persecuted right. the church. They killed church leaders <clears throat> because they believed that that church would always be undermining the common cultural glue that was revolutionary France. So, um, so this notion of separating uh, politics and religion, while certainly has its roots in the tension between Pope and emperor and all of that in, in the West, um, doesn't really flourish until the 19th century. And I would argue really way into the late 20th century, um, you had a kind of common Protestant notion, a kind of civil religion in the United States that still provided the cultural glue. Um, but we are past that now. Mm. We are really into what, what, does, what does a culture look like when it doesn't have a religiously based um, cultural glue. And it doesn't, it looks pretty fragmented, I, I, I would say. So I would, yeah, I, um, it starts to feel heavy on my heart at this moment, because you realize when you say heavily fragmented, um, I, I think, you know, what's the end of this? Cause there is such a divide and not to say that we are in the time of judges, but everyone did what was right in their own eyes. There is something that feels relevant to our time of what is the norms to guide us. Well, the norms and somewhat seem to be very, very individualistic. Um, and so I guess I had just a couple questions as we begin to wrap up. Um, if you were to give a lay of the land, um, you know, I think we feel some unease last week on our podcast, we talked about age of anxiety and almost a, a societal neurosis that there is because of, we sense so many things in flux and change right now that is affecting us. Um, and then also what, you know, we go to church and we gather as God's people to, to be salt and light in the world. That is certainly part of our calling, but what would you advise Christians, especially men and women working on the Hill, how they can think of their work and what they're called to and how they can serve and um, be salt and light in this, in Washington, DC, in our nation's capital, working as a form of representative government for people back home in very different ways. Um, I want to toss it over to you. Yeah. Uh, so Christians today in the United States and I guess I, I will define Christians a little bit more narrowly, not, not that this is my definition of Christian, but uh, let's just talk about evangelicals more specifically than say Roman Catholics or Eastern Orthodox. Um, evangelicals could go one of two ways. They can either try to reestablish Christendom, reestablish the Protestant um, consensus that was the United States. Um, and I, and I have a lot of friends who would, who are arguing that today. And my concern with that particular, uh, choice is that it would require tremendous government coercion to make it work. And I think you see this in places like Hungary, um, and, a lesser extent Poland now, because they're 
very much involved in this Ukraine war, but but the Hungarians and Orban in particular uh, says, you know, I reject liberalism and its fragmentation of society. I want a more uniform culture. And I am willing to make sure the press is entirely uh, in the state's control, under the state's control. I am willing to make the courts entirely under party control. Um, I am willing to use propaganda, sometimes fact-based, sometimes not so fact-based, to make sure people are thinking the right things. That is one way to do it. But I do believe that that requires a tremendous amount of state coercion. And you're not definitely, you're not sure who's controlling the state. The other option is to accept the fragmentation of Western culture and say, I don't know where God's taking this. Uh, it may be the end of the West. Uh, we might be able to come up with some kind of loose, what we call, what you would call Western values that are based in Christianity. They really are. This whole, any notion of individual human dignity is based in Christianity. You just don't, well, it's based in monotheism. You don't see it in non-monotheistic religions, this notion of a created individual that has dignity. Um, and so much just extends from that very central idea that human beings are valuable in and of themselves because they were created. Um, and, and, and so we could maybe develop a cultural glue around a small number of Western values that are sort of incorporated in our great international documents like the human rights, uh, the uh, UN Charter on Human Rights or the European Charter on Human Rights, the American Bill of Rights. Um, that's, that's perhaps possible. Uh, it doesn't have the same power as a religion does, but you can check culture and society based on the, a conception of those values. Um, so the second option is to accept that maybe as a stage in the decline of the West, I will say as a parenthesis, that does not mean the decline of the church. The church very, you know, the church has almost disappeared from the Middle East, where it started, to 2,000 years. It's almost entirely gone. But that doesn't mean it's erased from the planet. Um, it may be almost gone from Europe voluntarily rather than by persecution. Um, but that doesn't mean it's gone from the planet. And it may be on its way out in North America as well but it's not going to eliminate the church from the planet. It will still thrive in Latin America and sub-Saharan Africa, China, maybe India. Um, so God will preserve his church. He might not preserve Western culture. And we have to separate those two things. Um, so, and, but then for those on Capitol Hill, I would say, don't work for a new Christendom. What you will do is you will commit atrocities against people who disagree with you. Um, because ultimately, you will have to coerce people. And yeah, I, I'll just leave it at that. Uh, but we can work. I think we can work to demonstrate that the kingdom of God is 
attractive as an alternative to the fragmentation of liberal Western culture. And that's where I think it's going to be small. I mean, we're all going to live in small groups. Our churches are going to shrink. Um, we're, we're going, you know, we're going back to the catacombs in some ways, but I'm okay with that. If that's what God wants, I'm okay with that. Uh, but I do think that that's a very attract, actually a very attractive thing to a lonely, fragmented, uh, discouraged, anxious generation. I think it can be very, um, there's so much hope in the church um, and, and the community of God's people who have been called out of the world. I think about, he's not a very reputable figure. I think he's kind of losing some uh, um, of his image, but now that he's passed, but Philip Roth, the American novelist wrote, wrote about the American berserk in his, uh, in his novels. And one of the things that that meant was that American history is bizarre and that it's revolutionary in epochs. And um, in one sense, we just don't know what the future holds in this country because, so I, I appreciate that, that there is a call to faithfulness. And I know that part of your work is in um, confessionalism. So looking at the role of confessional Christianity, and I think one of the strong ways that we can be reminded of a Christian culture, and I don't mean Christendom in the politics sense, but in like an ethical norms, uh, a way of life that is structured is by being reminded of our confession, uh, be reminded of what we hold fast. When I read the W Westminster Confession of Faith, I'm reminded that there's a robust document. You can go to the Heidelberg as well. You can go to the Belgic or canons of Dort. Um, but there's a robust view of human life in those that can guide us. And so I guess to land the plane, my, my question would be, how would you encourage the, or why would you encourage the value of confessional Christianity to young men and women as we, you know, as Hebrew says, we are not those who retreat, but those who preserve our souls and move forward. Um, mm -hmm. How would you encourage that? Uh, I think that, well, actually, I think you've just said a really good things right there. But I, I would underline that confessional Christianity um, is, first of all, a, um, a, a religion, I guess, a confession of hopefulness. And the flip side of that is, do not fear. I think too, too, too many confessional Christians fear the culture. They fear for their children. They fear for their grandkids. They fear the popular culture. They fear TikTok. They fear everything. But we serve a God who has overcome the world. TikTok is nothing to our creator. Mm. And I, I just, I really get very, very, I was going to say discouraged, but I don't get discouraged. I get mad at my fellow PCA members, community group members, whatever, who just seem to live in constant paralysis over what they think the culture is doing to them or doing to their children. I mean, we know from scripture itself that no matter what culture, human culture we live in, Satan is still roaming around like a hungry wolf it doesn't matter whether christendom is in power or non-christendom or the separation of church and state or 
you know, the Hollywoodization of our culture. It doesn't matter. Satan has always been after God's people, and God is always fighting for his people. So, you know, I, I just, I don't understand the fear. If we really do believe our theology, if we really do believe our eschatology, then there's nothing to fear. We move forward in the power and strength of the Holy Spirit who called us to community in the midst of an evil world. So do not fear. Move forward with joy and see who gets attracted to a joyful place rather than this fearful, hunkered down, bunker mentality. Uh, thank you for that. I have, I just got in the mail yesterday, Michael Horton's new book called cover recovering our sanity. That is uh, a book that's um, Russell Moore wrote the foreword and the subtitle is uh, how the fear of God conquers the fears that divide us. There is such a need for Christians to pastor pastorally and, and lovingly um, encourage each other in out of fear. I mean, and ter- encourage each other to not be fearful. Um, there's a reason Jesus says fear not so many times and mm-hmm. uh, um, that, you know, there's a, just a great need for us to lovingly come alongside each other. And I think part of the community is what can uh, of the church is what can be an antidote to that. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I really appreciate Amen. that and your words and, and your time here with us today. And so before I, I land the plane, I wanted to see if you had any final thoughts or words you wanted to leave us with. Um, no, I think, uh, I get, well, I'll say this. I think we, we do live in uh, a time when Christians are being forced to think about things that they've never thought about before, uh, because we are no longer the people in charge in the United States. Um, we really have lost our, our political and our, our cultural um, points of strength. And we are upset about that. I know I am to some extent, uh, but we have to recognize that, you know, God does not promise us political and cultural power. He promises us that we will most of the time suffer at the hands of political and cultural power, but that's the norm. That's more the norm than it is uh, the exception. And so I think we have to prayerfully think through these issues. I may not be right on a number of things. Um, I'm willing to be corrected by people who are thoughtful and biblical and grounded in, a, in their tradition. My own is a confessional tradition, but uh, there are other traditions that we can learn from and, and embrace the time, embrace the thoughtfulness embrace the opportunities to speak to my colleagues who are, you know, not religious at all, but have, are open to lots of different ways of thinking about the world that they hadn't thought of. And I am also open to ways of thinking about the world. So embrace the time, do not fear it. And I think we're going to come out a lot stronger than we thought we could be. Amen. Thank you so much, Brent. I think that's a great place. And I, with what you said, what I wanted to say in conclusion is hold fast to the promises of God. Put your hope in what is certain. Uh, like you said, what has God promised us? And, and I think comb the scriptures, look for what God has said, certainly, and 
build your life on that, not sand. So that that's a wonderful word. Thank you for that. And thank you so much for, uh, for listening this week. Um, as always, you can follow us on Twitter. You can follow Robert at RD Hasser. You can follow me at Stockdale. Will check out ministrytostate.org and subscribe to our weekly devotional. And uh, please like and subscribe to this podcast. And we hope you have a wonderful week and we'll be back with you next week.